This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. Leslie Hill and Helen Paris are the co-founders of a performance company called Curious and professors of performance making at Stanford University. They were joined in conversation by CIIS visiting faculty Ryan Takada on October 8, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco, in collaboration with the MFA Theatre Making and Performance Program, as part of the Dancing with the So-Called Dead Festival. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So I wanted to start with just what or who is curious? And why that particular name for your company? Well, we set up uh, 20 years ago. And um, we called ourselves curious because I think what excites us about making work is a general curiosity about the world that we live in. So every project that we have done tends to start with a question. So, for example, um, what is the connection between the sense of smell and memory and emotion? So that led us into this whole uh, inquiry and collaboration with biological scientists about smell and what literally happens to the body on a cellular level when you smell something and what is it that then connects smell to memory and how you know you can smell something and it can transport brought you back, not just mentally, but almost physiologically, you know, to re-experience sitting on your granny's floor when she's cooking something. You really feel like you're there. So I think, in a nutshell, that's who we are. It's, it's about being curious, and that's, that's, that's hence the name. Wonderful. At the beginning of your workshop, you um, started with an automatic writing exercise, which I thought was really interesting. And I wanted to hear more about that choice of using an automatic writing prompt as a way of beginning. Why automatic writing? Mm -hmm. Do you use that in your own um, development as, as performance makers, mm -hmm. or is that solely a pedagogical tool? We use it all the time. Uh, we've used it on a lot of the scripts that we've written, and we use it pedagogically all the time as well. Um, I think we like to, especially in workshops, but also in the studio for ourselves, we like to, um, we do a lot of impulse work, so a lot of work about just trying to override the sensor and generate things quickly. So we, we like to come at questions from all angles. So automatic writing is, is a, is a language-based way of coming at something. Um, but because you're just writing very quickly and keeping the pen moving, you can also surprise yourself because you're, you're not doing the editing. Uh, we do like to ask people to go back and sort of underline or circle things that are of interest to them or things that are provocative or things they might want to work with. But yeah, we both use that all the time. I mean, Helen has a solo piece called Family Hold Back, and I would say 50% of it was written from automatic writing prompts. Um, there's, a, there's a beautiful song in a piece that we did called... Um, out of Water and the lyrics to the song were from an automatic writing prompt. Um, 
So we use that a lot. It's just a, it seems, for us, it's a great way of just sort of instantly unlocking some creative, associative, language-based approaches to a question or a prompt. I mean, that's, it's interesting because automatic writing, I feel like, it was a big part of the Surrealists, it was a big part of Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein and the avant-garde, and it has its, its other roots within occult practices mm-hmm. of, of spiritualism. Jane of, Stanford. Of Jane Stanford herself and her, you know, her brother down in Australia mm-hmm. who was running Ray of Light. Um, but it, there's something really occulty and myth, like mystical about automatic writing. Um, that is often like the beginning parts of a workshop, mm-hmm. or the, the starting points. And I find that sort of esoteric investigation to be interesting for contemporary practice. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that we're interested in through this festival of Dancing with the So-Called Dead is to figure out what are those relationships between contemporary performance practice mm-hmm. and things that are more of the occult or things about hidden knowledge or um, things that might be more on the terrain of the mystical mm-hmm. or mysticism, um, mm-hmm. which I feel like there's, there's plenty and we'll hopefully get to some of yeah. that. Well, like Ryan, you know, in the workshop today, we came into the automatic writing through doing yoga practice before and that was absolutely, you know, again, just that thing, like it's like being curious, it's like surprising yourself. And I think it is also about sort of giving permission and being open to what comes up. So we're doing these exercises and whatever you might think, it might just be having a stretch, but it might also on a cellular level, on a body memory level, who knows what comes up in that that then leads into. So I, I mean, I like that um, overlap of working physically and then writing and, you know, who knows what's feeding which. How did you get into yoga? How did I get into it? Well, I've, I've, I, trained as a, I trained as a dancer. I've always been interested in working physically. And the other thing that I like to do is work in a similar way with automatic writing. I like to work with the body in that way. I think the first piece of solo work I ever made, and this sounds a bit creepy actually, but I made it and I was on the floor like pulling myself along on my belly and suddenly all this text started coming out and I thought, oh, that's so interesting. And, and as I say, a little bit creepy. So I've always been interested you know, in, in working with the body. I mean, I just think we use all the tools that we've got, don't we, when we make work. Um, and whatever body we've got as well, you know, we just sort of throw it all in. So I think, you know, the yoga sort of part of that, it really makes sense. I mean, partly it's just like a huge stress relief for me, you know, just to go upside down. I think that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I also think I like doing it in classes as well. I like starting a class and just saying, let's just lie down because then we can stand up, you know. But especially if we're trying to make work, I do feel so much of the time like, I can't say that and that's not smart and is that really a good idea and that that's already been done, and so-and-so did that so many times better. And sometimes I just think, come into a room, lie down and breathe, you know. And again, this, is go- you know, this, is, this speaks to many different types of practices, but that I just find that that still holds true for me. I mean, you know, thousands of years old, yes, I'll, I'll keep with that one. So. <laughs> um, and when you're in your 40s, you do need to keep flexible as well, so that's the, you know, <laughs> hypothetically speaking, if one was in one's 40s. Yeah. And just, just curious, as a performance company, is it a, is it a very physical performance company, or is it? Can you, how does yoga find its way into the larger project of Curious? It's physical in lots of ways. We did a piece that involved three um, life rafts. The audience sit in life rafts, and I'm telling you, the people that are stuck in those life rafts, folding them up and putting them on the top of our car, and me and Leslie, you know, it's that kind of on the road performance work. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think the I think the work is physical. I mean, I think it's it's in the same way that we make different uh, lots of different forms of work. I think you know again the tools that we need for different performances are different. So some pieces are more static, but I naturally gravitate to making more physical work. Um, I I I find it you know it, it's sort of fruitful for me. Um, yeah. In your in your workshop earlier today, you asked. Uh, the participants to bring three objects. Can you describe what the prompt was for the the workshop participants to come in and how you came to those three particular categories? All right, so we invited the participants to bring three objects, one exquisite object, one mundane object, and one object that they had inherited from someone else. And I think it, it was... We thought of this workshop because of the title of your festival and thinking in terms of um, things that might have a sort of sacred aura or some kind of an aura of a spirit of someone else and also this idea of the exquisite. But, but we wanted to juxtapose it with mundane, ordinary objects. Um, Do you want to say Yeah, because one of the things we were interested in is how do you make the mundane Explicit, and that was the very last thing that the artist in the workshop did today was they made the mundane explicit. And for me, that's one of the really exciting things about performance is how we work with objects. And I use the word object as opposed to the more theatrical term prop. And how does an object take on transformational properties? How can that happen and how can we work with that? How can a pair of garden shears, for example, be something to shave one's legs with? And then what does that then say about shaving one's legs, for example? So I, I think, it's, I think that the, the prompt about making the mundane exquisite is really looking at performance and thinking about the beautiful power that objects have in performance. And the and the power that performance has to transform something like scotch tape into one of the moments in the workshop, uh, there was involved a spoon and scotch tape, and it was exquisite. But it was through what the performers did that we got that exquisite feeling, and and that was true of all the different ones with. Mundane objects like toothbrushes, hairbrushes, a cup of water. There was quite a lot of water, actually. In the, in. <laughs> and what is it about when we when I was watching your workshop? There's something about juxtaposition and misuse, remixing, and general contrast of tones that reveals something about objects. Like what is what is that reveal? Why why do you think that is so effective? I mean, I, I think it's that it's that power of objects and how that we, when they behave in that way that's not expected. Um, there's this wonderful performer in the UK called Bobby Baker, and she makes a lot of work with really everyday objects. And there's a piece that she does called Box Story, in which she uses lots of different boxes, so cornflakes boxes and. Um, chocolate boxes and she tells an autobiographical story related to each box and there's one really innocuous little box of Coleman's mustard I don't know if you've it's a little yellow tin box of mustard very British powdered mustard and but she tells this story of this very seemingly innocuous story about you know Coleman's mustard and having it on a picnic with her family at the beach and how her father's just gone off for a swim and they're going to have sausages with this mustard she's telling this performance telling this story and in this story her her father goes for the swim and he doesn't come back. He drowns. So then this little tiny Coleman's mustard takes on this extraordinary, epic 
quality, and there it sits on the stage. And I, I love that. I think that's incredibly powerful. And I think particularly with young artists or with student artists, I think seeing the power of objects and working with that and seeing the beautiful humor and seeing a hair clip suddenly become a weapon of mass destruction is, I think, incredibly powerful. And I think... You know, I think in the world of visual arts, I think that is much more commonplace, and I'm really excited in more sort of theatre-trained, maybe, students coming and really thinking about an object having that power rather than a prop that maybe works more as an accessory, but something that really takes on its own sort of epic power and transformative, and I think that's very much the territory that you're talking about in this festival as well. Yeah, That's fantastic. The, something that's not so explicit is that the the original name that we have for the, the bigger festival is the New Not New, the inaugural New Not New Festival, <laughs> colon, Dancing with the So-Called Dead. And that comes from an Anais Nin short story, Ragtime, where she gives the, a song from old rag pickers in Paris. Mm. And it's, um, uh, nothing is lost, but it changes into the new string, old string, and the new bag, old bag, and the new pan, old tin, in the new show, shoe, old leather, and the new silk, old hair, and the new hat, old straw, so on and so forth. But it, we were really interested in these transmutations of objects, people that pick through detritus and transform it into something else. And I, I love that about performance, and I find that um, to be really contemporary in a lot of ways, and, and making do, and being incredibly resourceful, and finding little little things and being able to transform them into larger things, the, the bits into the epic and this sort of thing. Um, and it makes me think of a project that you guys did in 2005 called Lost and Found. And I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about what that project is, and what your role, particularly Helen, was in Lost and Found. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll tell the first part, and then you can tell the about your, your secret work placement. Um, so Lost and Found was, we had, we had an artist residency in Shanghai, and then we were doing another festival residency in Birmingham in the UK, and you would think these two parts of the world didn't have that much in common. But at the, at the same time, we lived in London in the East End, and all three of these cities were undergoing massive regeneration. So regeneration is like the positive term for we're regenerating the city. But it also means um, a lot of displacement of people. It means um, capital is moving in and buying up the decrepit interiors and, you know, well, it's ha happening completely in the Bay Area where people just get pushed further and further out to the edges. So, um, so the idea for doing something about Lost and Found came through came through the fact that in that year we were working a lot in these three cities that were undergoing massive regeneration. And the regeneration was like, uh, East London was having regeneration because the Olympics were coming, um, which meant that property values went up, but a lot of things were torn down to make the stadium. And, uh, and Shanghai is the, I've only, we've just been there twice for two different projects, but the pace of change in Shanghai is unlike anywhere I've ever been. Um, just whole sections of the city torn down and rebuilt anew, and people bust into satellite cities maybe three or four hours out of town. So that that was the impetus for making something about lost and found. Uh, this idea of all these displaced people and objects and things and buildings from these three locations we were working in a lot. 
Yeah, so one of the, one of the things with the, with the project was that we were asking people what had been lost for them in, in their communities. Um, and I wanted to do some research for myself to create a persona because Leslie and I decided we were going to set the performance of Lost and Found on an old-fashioned bus, like a 1950s bus in Birmingham that would drive through these landscapes. So the audience sit in the bus and they literally look out of the window and they say, well, that's changed. Remember when that used to be... Remember when we used to sit there and have chips and, you know, and now... So that is part, sort of part of it. But I, so I wanted to create um, a persona of someone who would talk about loss on my terms, so that the audience and the participants in the project could talk about, you know, what loss was for them. And I didn't want to usurp that. I didn't live in that city, although I did live in London, which was undergoing huge change because of the Olympics at the time. But, and we don't talk about ourselves as actors, but I wanted to find a character or a persona. So I got myself a job in the lost property department in Baker Street, which is right next to um, the, uh, where, you know, Sherlock Holmes lived, you know, so that's sort of an interesting little sort of collision there about, you know, people that might help you to solve a mystery and track down something. So in Lost Property Department, like, they have 600 items handed in every day, and they, these come from, it's the London Transport Lost Property, so they, everything's coming from trains, from buses, from taxis. Um, the tube. Yeah, the tube, yes. And I have here, I'm just going to tell you, I... Uh, I've prepared this list for you, some of the things that are in lost property. And I want you to just think about this and just think about people are leaving these things behind on the train. False teeth, false eyes, replacement limbs, two and a half hundredweight of sultanas, a lawnmower, breast implants, a four-foot teddy bear, a coffin, wheelchairs, crutches, a stuffed eagle, a 14-foot boat, um, an outboard motor, water skis, a park bench, a grandfather clock, a garden slide, an inflatable doll, a jar of bull sperm, an urn of someone's actual ashes, three dead bats, a gas mask, a Tibetan bell, a stuffed puffer fish, a vasectomy kit, a harpoon gun, and two human skulls. Um, so... There's this extraordinary array of loss. It does make you wonder about, you know, would you not notice if you'd come in with your grandfather clock and then you were getting off the train, something's missing. <laughs> so, so I was, went undercover. So some of the people in the lost property department, like the, 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 you know, the, the other officers I was working with knew, but the people, the patrons that I was working with, taking in their um, uh, questions about had their lost object turned up, they were completely, you know, they thought that I was official. Um, but one of the things that I loved was how people talk about loss. So, you know, it's the, there's a gesture as well. Like a, a young boy came in and he'd lost his identity card and he was saying, so I'd put it in between the pages of a book. I'm sorry, I'm doing all of that. <clears throat> Popping peas and everything. He'd, I'd, I'd put it in between a book and so we had a newspaper with him, you know, and then he mined, you know opening the newspaper and you know, sort of as if it was neither important to show what it looked like to have something in the middle of something and, and, and open it up or, or a man that was saying I loved my cap on the bus on the way to Victoria now it was raining that day and it was a tweed cap it's a little bit like a cap that a doctor's have you know so all this language that goes on and all this lovely sort of physical choreography that goes on as they describe and show and shape loss and also some of the language like somebody came in and they said I come more in hope than expectation. I, I, 
thought that was just amazing. And then you have all these incredible objects, and they all have a little yellow um, ticket on them downstairs in the basement, this huge cavernous basement. It sort of looks like a theatrical prop room, you know, with the grandfather clock and the, le the legs and the vasectomy kits and all the rest of it. And so it looks like that. I mean, it's sort of ripe for making any, you know, any sort of any drama happen. So they've all got these lovely labels. And again, you know, so the lost property workers label label the items as well, where they were lost, where they were found, and a description of it. And lots of things, like lots of single gloves, so just one hand, just one hand of the gloves, and then you learn all these wonderful stories. So things stay in lost property for three months, waiting to be collected, and if they're not claimed, they all get stripped, so all the contents of the bags get stripped, and they get packed off to Tooting in London um, for auction to the highest bidder. And there's a woman who collects all the single gloves. I mean, you know, automatically there we've got a show. You know, we've got that, just that wonderful thing about that. What do you do with a single glove? Do you know, it's like the table for one. I mean, it's just, you know, gorgeous. So it was, for me, it was just an amazing... Um, it was just an amazing place to work, really, really rich in terms of objects. And of course, that beautiful unifying thing about lost, you know, it goes over, you know, in, it, it, this is in the UK, one of the most class-ridden societies, you know, ever. And yet, you know, obviously loss completely supersedes class. Everybody is affected by loss, whatever they're coming in for, you know, whether it's their Gucci purse left in the back of a black cab or whether it's their bus pass, you know, it really sort of, you know, it, it eclipses, it eclipses everything. And I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you a tiny piece of text because what I was doing was I was listening to the lost property workers, listening to the people coming in and trying to create this persona that then I would use in the performance. So it's all based on sort of truth. And there's just this one little thing about this man that came in. An old man left a black hold all on this bus. I asked him what was inside. We have to catalogue loss. We have to give it a name, a number. He said there was a woman's purse. We have to give it a colour texture. It was a lady's purse, one of those ones with a silver twist opening. Inside the hodel there was also a candle and a little trowel. He was on his way to the cemetery to tend his wife's grave. She died last year. He said they'd been married 54 years. 54 years. He said there wasn't any money in the purse. He was just carrying it about with him. Still holding on, holding it all in his hold all, all he has left. Hold on. That's fantastic. Come on, Helen. The <laughs> <laughs> so break it down for us a little bit. So you spend how much time in the lost property department? So I was there for a, for a couple of weeks, just working there down in the basement and then behind the counter cataloguing the loss and then and listening to the conversations, watching these beautiful articulations of loss and then creating this sort of persona built, built, but built on you know, real experiences and then that, that came into this performance on a, on a bus. But, you know, as a, an established performance maker, as a scholar, as a teacher, like there, you, you don't necessarily need to put yourself in that place. So what, what was the impetus to say, I need to go to work, show up, and be incredibly situated within the actual environment itself? Well, I think it's to do with authenticity. You know, I think, I think it's really that for us. You know, it really was about, I'm interested in real objects. That's what people were working with today, real objects with real memories that have really been given. And that's what 
is interesting to me. I remember one of the hardest things that Leslie and I ever had to deal with, we were doing this performance on a boat at, um, it was in uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, it was commissioned by the RSC, you were involved in that one, Ryan. And, uh, you know, if the thing was going fine, we had our performance, we were on the boat, it was all ready, and um, then they said that there was a problem and we couldn't serve alcohol. And... To me, that's anathema, that we would have to do fake cocktails, because for me, it's always about the truth. I mean, that's why I make performance, because I believe in the contact and communication in the live moment. And my God, we need that more now than ever. My God, do we need to talk to each other. I mean, that's why this festival, I think, is so important and so timely. We need to make sense of this bonkersness that's going on. So, um, so, for, so for us, it was like the idea that we would use prop alcohol. Do you know? No, we give our audiences proper alcohol. I mean, that's how we keep them, to be honest. You know. Um, so I think it's that, Ryan. You know, and also <laughs> more wine at the back. Who, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't want to go incognito? I mean, I think that's really important, and I think especially if you work in the academy, I think especially you know if you're doing that, I think we have to. I think we should go undercover as artists all the time. I set my students an assignment this week to take themselves on a date, you know, and somebody took themselves on this. She took themselves on a swimming lesson. And she had this fear of swimming, and someone else went to the massage parlor. I think these are all things that give us muscles. How do we give ourselves? Training as artists, you know, we have to sort of find those things. There are fabulous things like this course that you're running here that I think really do um, give students those muscles. But I think what are the ways that we as artists, you know, by ourselves can find that for ourselves? And for me, working in Lost Property was a wonderful, was just, just a wonderful sort of, you know, thing of being incognito in this world of, of Lost. I could never have experienced, just go, going around and having a tour wouldn't have been the same for me as working there, of cataloguing, going around with the trolley and writing the, writing the little descriptions, do you know? That's wonderful. Uh, the, so I have a quote from you in your book, Performing Proximity, which I encourage everyone to read. It came out in 2014 through Palgrave, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and in it, in reflecting and critically reflecting, reflecting on Lost and Found, you say, quote, I hoped it would provide me with a landscape for exploring loss. Not loss on a grand scale, but small everyday loss. I found both commonplace loss and epic loss, because at the Lost Property Department, I learned that they are more closely intertwined than I had imagined, the profound within the everyday. And I just want to hear a little bit more about how you see that sort of intertwined. What is that? How are they intertwined, the epic and the commonplace, in terms of loss? Well, I think it's, you know, I think it is... It is the you know the the man that comes in. He's a Polish man. He's living in London, you know. And I mean, this was pre-Brexit, but um, you know, now those those sort of situations of of belonging and belongings, you know, are so fraught. But you know, I remember this man coming in and he'd lost his wallet. But the most important thing to him in his wallet was the photograph of his daughter. You know, like the little extract of text that I wrote out. The man that came in with that little holdall, with the candle in, you know, with his, you know, going to tend his wife's grave. You know, he's carrying the purse around. You know, it is that thing about the the ordinary object and this epic loss that is then connected with that object. You know, so I think. 
And, and I also love, I love that humanity that we have about, you know, how we talk about things, you know, and not, I don't mean in a materialistic way, I mean in that sort of attention to detail. And I think I'm thinking here of touch and love and, you know, how the man's describing his Tweedy hat, you know, and that place where we sort of converge on, oh, yes, I know, I know what you mean, you know, the words that we use to describe objects and when we find contact and, you know, when we understand each other and on that really simplistic level, you know, so, and the, Gosh, the joy of giving something back to somebody that seems so, you know, here is your, you know, here is your book, here is your purse, here is the teddy bear, you know, and that, you know, and that does, that takes us right back to all those childhood sort of connections with possessions that, of course, you know, now get subsumed by the, you know, the, our phone or whatever it is. But, you know, I just think on another level, that sort of tactile relationship we have with the world, and, of course, it's connected with memory, you know, and, and family, and it, and it goes back, you know, to that, so... That, that wonder of that profound, you found my umbrella, you know, that, just that thing of reunited, which is, you know, of course you can make huge and is, is just also just itself. Mm. How about you, Leslie? What about the epic and the commonplace experience of loss intertwined within these objects? How do you, what is that relationship? I guess, you know, in terms of the lost property, I was um, coming in, I didn't have a job at lost property, so I would hear about Helen's Day. I was, in the meantime, training as a flair bartender because my character in the performance, it was like a a lounge, a a cocktail lounge where you... It was a departure lounge. Um, So it was lost lost and found in the sense of departures and comings and goings. So I was training as a bartender and learning to juggle cocktail ingredients so so I would tell about my day and show my the bruises that I had and so forth as Helen came back but my so my experience of going into lost property was um yeah so was more as a filmmaker because I came in at the end they let me come in with a steady cam rig and film Helen walking through it's massive it's huge it's it's cavernous it's like catacombs of Things like there's a whole room just of umbrellas, you know, and there's a whole room just of uh, shopping bags, you know, from ordinary Sainsbury's bags to like really special Fortnum and Mason bag with a bottle of champagne and chocolate truffles, you know. So that like what you were saying about class, there's all the different lost shopping of people. So I guess I was experiencing the lost and found more as a filmmaker in this way that it was just like this amazing epic you know lots of the objects were very ordinary but when you see the scale of that many of them all together with these little tags on them and you know that these are just the current lost items these are just things that are just very recently lost in the city and these are just the things that have been turned in so that's a small fraction of the lost things yeah, so, so for me there was something visual about it and something about scale because uh, I was coming in as, as a filmmaker more than a, a lost property worker, I guess. But yeah, so, so my experience in that project was more about drunkenness and the stories people tell <laughs> about loss, I suppose, when they're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I... I mean, I think it's really interesting that you guys look are looking at lost objects in that piece because I feel, I feel like uh, one of the methods for art making that's been around since like like 
Duchamp and, and Picasso is this thing of the ready-made or the found object, right? the thing that you drag in and you, you show again in a different kind of context. But here you guys are working particularly with lost objects, mm -hmm. which I think is really beautiful through performance. So why, why performance as a way of getting at the sense of loss? What is that? Why is performance a chosen medium amongst all the other mediums you could go for in terms of dealing with questions of loss? Well, I think Helen was dealing with lost objects through lost property, but I think the three performances that we did in Shanghai and London and, and Birmingham were dealing with lost neighborhoods more than objects. And so um, performance was a good medium for dealing with those because we could take people on a journey. So in, in London, the East End is built around a canal system, which was the industrial, you know, that was the industrial heart of the East End, was the, was the docks, the canals, the, um, uh, the, all the industry around East London, is, it's very, it was very much a port city. Um, so the East End is just crisscrossed with canals, and so is, so is Birmingham, actually. Um, but performance was a live medium where you can meet up with people, take them on a journey. So in London, we could be on a boat going down the canals. So we could be seeing all the things that are being torn down or changed or regenerated. And in Birmingham, the same thing um, on this old, this old bus that the more elderly audience remembered that bus, you know, because it was a, I think it was 1952 bus. So some people remembered taking that actual bus. So we through performance, which is live and which is people coming together, we could take them on a journey where they're, we're actually driving past these things that have been torn down or, yeah, does that make sense? That works for me, yeah. How about you, Helen? Why performance, why performance and loss? How, like, what is that pairing? Oh, I think it's absolutely about the liveness of it. I think it's absolutely that, you know. And we did make a video project. In fact, Leslie did a film in Shanghai that was that was how we worked on Lost There because literally houses were being raised down and there was one last house standing called which we called Red Lantern House and we met the woman who, who lived there and was keeping her house standing until it was bulldozed down. So that actually was, was a film. But I think for us, and for working with objects, for me, it's, it is about that. It is about liveness. And I think then that is always, it is always the medium that I come back to. Do you know, and we've had some really lovely work experiences in film and in video and in installation. But for me, liveness is where there is that real different kind of visceral, in that moment, heated experience of um, contact and communication that's possible and, and the proximity possible within that and the politics I think the politics of that of, of live performance and, and what's possible I think is really interesting to me I think it's loaded in a different way but what objects have you guys lost or found recently I mean my mother um, has lost something my mother has lost this bag that she won't stop talking about and every time I Skype her you know which is a conversation with that much of her <laughs> Every, every week I hear about the bag, you know. Uh, did, did I tell you about the bag that I still haven't found? No, tell me. I mean, you know, there's only so far that conversation can go, but, um, but yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I'm not, I can't think of anything that's 
that's come to mind that I've lost. But um, but I love, I mean, I love objects, you know, and I that's the thing that can happen with them in performance as well. I think that you really, I think that you see something in front of you like a pair of garden shears, you know, and you see it as that, and you see it more like that in performance when you're not expecting any trickery. You see it as it is, front and back, inside out. You see its beauty and its ugliness, you know, and then in that moment you see it change. And then I think you think, well, if that... If a pair of garden shears can become something that you're shaving your armpits with, then what's possible? You know, so I think there's that, you know, I think there's that, and that I'm always interested in. Um, and I'm actually, I'm actually quite good at not losing things. I'm actually very good at finding things. So I think that's why maybe I'm having a problem. What did you love. find recently? Oh, she finds oh, everything. Anything yeah. I lose, I just yeah. tell her, yeah. and she just yeah. finds it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've had this whole thing about should I go for citizenship or not, and I think, well, I don't want to be a citizen if Trump gets in, clearly. But at the same time, at the moment, I don't get any social security. You know, I'm paying social security, but it's always just being recorded. Maybe you shouldn't get into these kind of conversations. I don't mean about Trump. I mean about social security. But, you know, so I'm thinking, well, maybe I should she be... She did say she is paying I know, it. I'm paying it, but you yeah. see, you don't get it. You don't get it unless, unless you're, you're a citizen. For ten years. So I'm thinking, you know, well, you know, these these things are in, you know these things are important. So we have to find all our documents to say that we're to say that we're married, to say that we're born. You know, all of these documents, and I'm just I'm finding them all over the place. <laughs> so that's that was probably a lot of unnecessary information. I <laughs> beg your pardon, you know. But. But our marriage license has been lost. Yes. And, which is ironic because Ryan was our best man. I was the fantastic best man. So maybe you know where it is. Yeah. Maybe, you, maybe you have it? <laughs> yeah. Selling that off. Um, I, you, I mean, you guys speak so passionately about performance. Um, and I, in your estimation, and this is something I'm just curious about, from all the people that we've invited for Dancing, for the cold, the so, Dancing with the So-Called Dead, um, is what is the spirit of performance in, in your worldview? Um, and does spirituality have a place within contemporary performance? And I, I speak about that really broadly. Um, it's, it's, and a lot of this is inspired by um, a conversation actually Bell Hooks and Cornell West mm -hmm. had with, at the New School, where they were talking about a kind of spiritual massacre that's happening around the death of so many black folk in the US mm -hmm. at the hands of police. It also was around the time that, if I'm thinking correctly, around Orlando and those sort of bombings. And here in San Francisco, that sort of, in a bunch of, bunch of different ways, the, the loss of real estate and space for alternative art makers, for performance makers. There's just so much loss when Erica, um, our co-organizer, Erica Chongshak, our, our co-organizer, and I were talking about this festival, that it seemed like we wanted to take that up. What is it about performance that can help rejuvenate, that could help rebuild a kind of spirit? And I, I go to performance, I go and see performance as I would, as people might go to church, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I go to the studio and make work with my friends, um, as I did with Chris uh, Roard White at the Headlands earlier. Um, as a kind of spiritual practice, as something that lifts me up in that. I'm just curious about that for you personally. What is that relationship between what we might call spirit and performance, mm. or spirituality mm. and performance? Mm. Well, I do think there's a communion in live performance that you don't get in other, you, like I love film, I'm a big consumer of film, but there's not that feeling of communion that you get when you go to a theater. You know, even the contrast this week, we went to see something at ACT, and then the next night we went to see something at um, the cows, a crowded fire piece. Oh. And the difference in the two communities was so 
extreme. You know, the, the community last night uh, for the piece that was, was really dealing with race in America, that community, that was a really powerful experience, whereas um, the other piece we went to at ACT was fine, but it was, uh, you know, it was an elderly white audience coming to an entertaining piece. It didn't, it didn't have that feeling of, I don't know. Uh, it didn't have that feeling that this could change the world, that this, this can provoke conversations and deeper delving into questions that can help heal, I don't know, provoke, confront, heal things. Whereas, you know, the, the smaller house, last night at a smaller space, with a very different, much younger, much more diverse audience, that felt like a place where magic could happen. Or where at least some really interesting conversations could happen. Yeah, I mean, I keep talking about it in terms of contact and communication, and I totally believe in that. There is this really nice quote that uh, Jill Dolan says, and she says, we too often found it on the shoals of, what does this do? when how something feels in the moment might be powerful enough. And I think a lot of our work is about that, you know, and we're in, like, we've made a lot of work to do with connection with the biological sciences. So really about what it is to be human, you know, we've worked with gut feelings, so we've worked with gastroenterologists working on the, um, you know, the guts. And like I said, we've worked with smell. And one of the things I loved about smell that I did find actually in spiritual in the way that we, we did this performance about smell, it takes place in a house, or it takes place in a domestic setting. So many people's memories of home, memories, smell memories are connected with home. So it's set in a home. And we've done it in houses sort of all, all over the place. So we've done it in an ex-communist building in Shanghai, and we've done it in a building in Brazil, and we've done it on, you know, like Madison Avenue, and we've done it in a council, you know, flat in, in the north of um, the UK. And what I love is there are so many differences in terms of people's, you know, smell memories, um, obviously, that are really interesting and sort of political and, and just fascinating. But there are also extraordinary collisions, you know, when people in Brazil are talking about, you know, their grandparents and, you know, the same kind of conversation that somebody in, you know, the council flat in Birmingham is having. And I love that. Do you know, I love that sense of, I love what can happen in the performance. Or because we've been doing a performance in a house, in a council house, the guy next door who has never been to a piece of theatre in his life rocks up, you know. And I love that as well. I love that sort of, you know, in a sense, in the most ideal way, and it's not when it's big, big price tickets, but the, you know, the, the democracy of performance, you know. I mean, I love that you've got Guillermo Gomez-Pena as part of this, because I think he, so much in the work of Poco Nostra, I think what they do so much really pays homage, you know, to that sort of moving spirit, you know, within within performance um, that I couldn't, you know, get anywhere near doing. But I think on a smaller level, I think some of the work that we've done with proximity, which definitely doesn't make a lot of money when, you act, when you've just got one audience. <laughs> it's not what you call big box office. But, you know, I love that. I love having one moment interaction with one person, you know, and how close is too close and how close can you get and what can happen in that moment. A two-way exchange, not just what have I got to tell you, but what can happen between us. And I, I do believe in that. I do. If we don't believe in that, I don't know what is left for us. You know, I don't, you know. 
I don't. I think we have to believe in that. You know, like Lois Weaver's doing this wonderful thing. She's an artist that I really like. She's doing this thing at the moment she's calling porch sitting, you know, and it's just about sitting and talking. And it is those really simple ways on how do we come together. And I think it is when things are so extreme at the moment in terms of nationalism and in terms of how, you know, immigration is being treated in you know, all of our countries. This sort of horror of how we're treating each other. I believe in finding empathy. I believe in finding, you know, those things between us. And I think the dynamic of live performance can make that happen. And I believe that. I believe in the politics of it. And I stand by it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I believe in you. I mean, you brought up Jill Dolan. And I, I think that, especially when she talks about utopia and performance and the intersubjective, I can't imagine um, 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 I'm your company, Curious, is so invested in the intersubjective, interrelational exchange with an audience. And for, for Dolan, it's very much about the, the utopic potential and possibilities of the affective exchange between an audience and a performer. And I think you guys are a fantastic model of that. Yeah. Um, and I hope that for our audience here and the ones listening on the podcast can experience just a little bit of those possibilities and the horizons yeah. of performance. So thank you very much. Yeah. It was a wonderful thank speaking you. with you. And we very much look forward to the things you do here in the Bay Area. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for having us. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.